Welcome back to the st- Wait, no, that's not right. Welcome to the Network Age. This week, Bitchel Ritson, your usual MC, is away. And so, like two hapless plague mice, Neil Run Mardux and I, Hapsel Rigner, shall play. In light of recent happenings in Argentina, we brought on a person of crypto and Argentina expert, Sila, to give us the rundown on hyperinflation, Argentine history and politics, and what America might look like in a collapse scenario. Let's jump right in. The Argentine very much has a mythos. You know, there's this phrase, um, which is the Argentine is an Italian who speaks Spanish who believes that he's British, um, which is a very well-known one. The one <laughs> I like better is that we like to think we're, you know, Anglo-Saxon Germanic, but we are very much on average like Italian and Spanish. We very much have the med, the Mediterranean genes. Um, and yeah, there's a lot of I, I think, LARPing yeah. is kind of French, but then also never having been to France in the last hundred years. And so there, there's not really oh, the cultural sure. exchange, at least going the way from Argentines going to France and coming back. And so it's just sort of like, yeah, this is what French are. And no one like questions that. Yeah. And then the last thing I think is a big deal is you have sort of people who say like, oh, you know, history follows these trend lines and, you know, there's ebbs and flows, but things are sort of, you know, inevitable. Like the resource curse, for example, is a big one. You know, oh, Argentina was resource cursed. I, I very much believe that, you know, you have these trend lines, these characteristics or these attributes to countries that will push them in one direction or the other. But, you know, I, I do believe in the theory of like great men and that elites, good elites or bad elites can move history in different ways. And I think Argentina was very much played by bad elites. Um, I don't know how much you know about this, but Argentina, like we liberated Chile um, you know, they, they probably would have been liberated on their own, but we played a pretty big part in that. Uruguay is sort of actually a contingent of the Argentine army that was up in Brazil that basically was on their way back and just said, you know, screw it, we're staying on this side of the river, actually. We, we, you know, they came all the way to Rio de la Plata, and then they basically said, well, actually, no, uh, we're, we're staying on this side. We don't, we don't want to go back to Argentina. Um, we also controlled at one point, we won a war against Brazil and we controlled a significant portion of Southern Brazil. It wasn't sustainable for us to you know, conquer Brazil. I'm not under any like insane delusions, um, but I, I do think you know, between that and then you know, take second order effects of, oh, if you control Chile, if you control Uruguay, if you control Southern Brazil, um, you know, et cetera, you can you know, very quickly start to snowball and Argentina ends up in a very different scenario. And in these cases, it was all cases of like elites um, that made certain choices and there's a lot of corruption suspected um, and whatnot. So I very much think Argentina, despite the fact that there's these trend lines, you know, of the resource curve or whatnot, I think Argentina is primarily a story of two things. Um, elite failure, which led to this sort of very parasitical socialism that when I say socialism, American think Americans might think one way or, or people from, you know, sort of, the West might think one thing, but it's it's much more parasitical. It doesn't wear any political banner. It's just like a naked, power-hungry um, sort of political chameleon where all they're interested in is clientelism. Mm. Um, so, yeah. And so Argentina, you know, let's set the picture. You talked a little bit about the independence of Argentina. And then by 1900, I think it was the fourth richest country per capita, richer than most Western European countries. When did it kind of like start declining? You mentioned the socialism and it seems like it's pretty much been 
declining for a very long time. So when did that really like kick off? What led to that decline in Argentina? I would say pretty much since the First World War, Argentina has been in decline. Um, mm. I, I think, yeah, I, I think, you know, it's a tough story because you have ebbs and flows. I think a really big thing in the U.S. Um, was, you know, you had the plans where you, you gave loan to sort of the recovering uh, European states. Um, you know, the, the European countries, you gave them these loans, very favorable, but they could only use them to transact with the U.S. And this coincided with a period where Argentina was attempting to switch from, a, you know, an agro exporter model um, with some sort of heavy machinery, but all very linked in a very natural way to a very unnatural model where we were trying to swab over to something called EC. Um, and this is, you know, the, the basically the, the intent to substitute um, lower quality industry, right? So let's say textiles. Oh, you know, we want to produce our own textiles. Um, and it was very much driven by a political need as sort of a, a jobs program and not a jobs program. A lot of times, you know, people say, oh, these jobs are, are jobs programs. They're not that way by design, I don't think. It's just, it's a way to consolidate uh, political power, right? You, you create these unions with a lot of workers inside them and the way for the unions to grow is to add more people and the politicians understand very much that, hey, you know, if, if I support these unions growing by creating incentives that will push forward these industries with a very, you know, high capacity of, of hiring low skill workers, this will continue to give me a contingent that will always, always vote me because they'll understand this very mm. naked clientelism. Yeah. And so this kicked off at the end of World War One. you were saying, and it's it seems like it's more or less continued, right? Can you talk kind of about the phases of maybe like Perón and then how that's kind of morphed into, I guess they're calling it like, what, Kirchner Isma or something? Like this yeah, now wave. you have Kirchner Isma. Kirchner was a, a figure who came into Argentine politics right after sort of the 2001 collapse. Um, but it's it's very much the same sort of thing of Peronism. And, and Peronism is like a chameleon. It's the technical name is actually um, Justicialismo Social, you know, which means like social justice. And this was much before the term social justice was really used a lot in the U.S. So it's actually very interesting. Um, but but yeah, I mean, you know, they started off as like very sort of right wing socialists, you know, sort of close to the communist, but not all the way communistic, right? Like a corporatist sort of view of the world where there's very strong unions, almost like, uh, you know, Rust Belt Democrats, um, mm. where, you know, they are traditional, they are socially on the right, but they have this very, you know, left-wing sort of economic positions that don't quite encroach onto communism, become fairly close. Um, and then Which is interesting, Perun, too, because, you know, Perón was also famous for, you know, housing a ton of Nazis post-World War II. So there's sort of this view that he was, at least among a lot of arbiters I've talked to, that he was like kind of this base dictator. But in fact, it seems like his policies were mostly very hard left. Is that right? Yeah, I can see how someone from outside would say, oh, this is a base dictator. But Perón was very much not a, a quote-unquote dark elf. Um, you know, he, he <laughs> married a... Um, uh, a woman of, you know, as they call it, the oldest profession, pretty much, uh, a glamour actress. Um, he was not very highbrow. He got stringed along and scammed with some guy in Bariloche who, who claimed to have, like, nuclear power. Um, he, he was very much a wannabe sort of, you know, quote-unquote dark elf. 
Um, mm. And I can see how from outside someone would see it that way, but it, it's you take a deeper look and and very much Peron is is like this social rot. Um, yeah, you know. But um, yeah, so you have his first exile, and during the first exile, there's sort of a wave of socialism that hits Latin America, and Latin America very much moves in patterns where countries see what other countries are doing around and they go oh that's working well for them and whether you know that's actually the cause of why it's working well for them or not we'll sort of emulate and so you have these rightward moves and these leftward moves in latin american politics um that that sort of follow each other and so at the time there's a very strong you know left-wing push and peron is exiled and you have this man campora and and today it's called la campora is sort of like the youth organization of of Peronism in Argentina, mm. and it's it's named after him. And Campora, this is where you have what's called the impossible game, because the military junta basically says, "Well, we're going to call elections because we want to open up democracy. We don't want to control, you know, the country with an iron fist." But if Peronism comes back, shows over. And this is very, you know, I don't know if it's explicitly stated, but it's very well understood in all the population that. You know, on the one hand, uh, a very large a majority of the population wants a Peronist type person, but the military junta will immediately coup you if if you come close to that. So you have what's called the impossible game, and you have to try to court the Peronist vote, while on the other hand, you know, not sort of giving in to to them too much because then the military junta will come after you. And obviously, you know, that's... And there were a uh, number of coups, right, during that period from yeah, like post-World War II up of, to 1980? Yeah, a number of, a number of different coups. Um, and then Peron, then he's exiled in Spain, you know, and he's sort of controlling things from there. And here you have the end fighting between, you know, sort of the left-wing social aspects of Peronism say, oh, you know... Peron is this figure that will bring about the Marxist revolution. And then you have like the more, you know, old school union leaders um, that say, no, you know, Peron is, is not this person. You know, he's still our old leader. You guys are a bunch of, you know, young idiots who are very idealistic and commie and whatnot. And he comes back and he makes it very, very evidently clear um, that, that he's, you know, with the sort of old guard of Peronism, that he's still you know, on the right socially and, and is not a communist. Um, he comes back and he has a big speech and he calls uh, the younger guys. He says, you're all a bunch of ignorant idiots. Uh, you don't understand what Peronism is. You know, I am Peronism. Um, th- these are, you know, foolish ideals that you have that aren't realistic and are not going to happen. Uh, very, very harshly. And there's also a massacre when he comes back because when he comes back and he lands at Esesa, which is the international airport here, um, there's like, you know, crowds of, of his left-wing supporters and his right-wing supporters, mm. and his his right-wing supporters kill something like 15 or 13 of, of the left-wing supporters. So, you know, not anything crazy, but definitely something that shows, you know, well, who, who's in control here. Okay, and then Perón comes back, and then I believe he, he dies, there's a military dictatorship, and then... You know they go they go to war with England, which is kind of interesting, right? With like the war of the Falklands, was that sort of like the end of the military dictatorship period? Once once the junta lost that war with England over the Falklands, yeah. After that, the military in Argentina is today like a very degraded institution, uh, especially compared to what you have in the U.S. But 
you know, going back for a second to, so Carol comes back, then he dies, and then his second wife, um, Isabelita, sort of takes control, um, but she's not very, you know, she's she's not a political figurehead. She doesn't really understand what she's doing. She's sort of shepherded into this position, and what ends up happening is it, it, his government ends up being very much controlled by these old, you know, guard of, of Peronism on the right, and they establish a thing called the Alianza Anticomunista Argentina, which is colloquially known as the Triple A or the Triple A, um, and this actually, interestingly enough, turns into the paramilitary, you know, apparatus that the later dictatorship uses to do what I would consider fighting a war um, against its that that you know happens to be against you know citizens um, inside of it, right? Very similar to McCarthyism, and I think here there's an optics problem that the dictatorship had. You know, I think the dictatorship made a lot of mistakes. Um, I, I wouldn't come out on the record as supporting these moves. Um, or anywhere close to it, but it, it was very much a war. You know, I, I know people who were here who had ancestors here, you know, parents, grandfathers, and there was bombings happening sort of like at, you know, maybe a, a Mercedes-Benz store, you know, because it represents imperialism. Um, there was, you know, political slogans all over the public university here, which is very big, the UBA. Um, you have, you know, local industrialists being kidnapped and ransomed and whatnot. And I think there's an optics, you know, when the dictatorship initially coups, there's like in the streets, a palpable sense of we want the dictatorship to come back. It's good that they took it over. Um, it was very much still a coup, but there was this idea of, okay, this was a good thing. Like the, the people, you know, el pueblo, there's the idea of el pueblo, which is like a way of saying, you know, the people want this. Um, mm. And over time, you know, they have economic hardships. They don't really understand what they're doing very well. And ultimately, they end up entering this war, you know, the war over the Falklands, over the Malvinas, um, you know, with with England, where they're very clearly outmatched. It's sort of this, it's like this dying man's, you know, death throes trying to reach up for something, a very desperate move. Yeah, and then they lose the war. And I guess, I guess I'm curious, just like, you know, most of our audience will think about Argentina as the country with tons of hyperinflation, right? Like it's had a number of hyperinflation events. Can you kind of walk us through like those particular events and why, why is Argentina always having these hyperinflations? Why aren't like, you know, the hard times creating strong men? Yeah, I think here it's a very big coordination problem. Um, Peronism, in my opinion, is like the ultimate bread most potent like virus political virus that exists um mm. you know we, we joke a lot about how like peronism gets exported from argentina um and i very much think like peronism is like this apex predator of of like socialist cancer and um and rot what's so cancerous so, about it is it it seems like it's uniquely able to employ huge amounts of the population and kind of keep people always wanting to come back, even when they've been burned by the government before. Yeah, people keep coming back. There's this very interesting interview that sort of went semi-viral on, on Twitter a while back, on Argentine Twitter, where, so the actual, right now, there's a vice president named Alberto Fernandez, who's sort of a puppet. He's a political nobody who is hoisted into his position, who's sort of, 
you know, identity launder of PCF and non-executioner, which I'm sure we'll get into. Um, he, she's VP, but she's very much in charge here, you know, um, like very, very nakedly. She and she was president for two pants. prior terms. Yeah. Yeah, she was president prior. We'll we'll get back into the the timeline chronologically. Um, and so they get this guy on the street and they say, "Well, the and here it's very funny." I, I was talking about this. We call it the dollar going up, right? It, it's called here in Argentina. It's called the dollar going up. It's not called the peso going down. What's really happening is the peso is going down, right? Because the dollar isn't moving relative. The relative move is the peso moving, but it's called the dollar moving up. And I think that's a very pervasive thing that that shapes you know the conversation where it's a sense of otherness a sense of well it's the dollar moving up it's not the peso moving down i think it's a problem for for argentina a problem of perspective and then how our language mm. shapes perspective and how our perspective shapes our language um but this guy's told wow the dollar is almost at 500 and for context you know even shortly ago it was at like 380 uh, so pretty insane inflation very quickly in argentina um, yeah i mean we arrived we arrived just with our crew for Aleph um, back on like the 15th of April. I think the first rate I got at Western Union was 380 pesos to the dollar. And then yesterday we got 460 and someone had even gotten 500 as well. So it just incredibly quick devaluation, you know, of about 25%. Yeah, I think you got, you got played a little, a little over bit. a week. Um, you, got, you got played a little bit on that 460. It's a, it's, it was at 496. I don't know if it pulled back. I, I honestly don't. Don't follow it in my day to day. God, um, I lose my mind. <laughs> um, you know, this is you know, you handle stability like this. It's like the guy, you know, in the middle of the Iraq war zone. They're like, "Oh, how's the war going?" Well, I don't know. I'm just sitting here sipping my coffee, sort of. That's very much, you know, riding the tiger type deal. Um, and so they get this guy at this interview, and they say, "Well, the the dollar's at 500. Um, what, what do you think?" And he goes, "Well, I'm very calm. I don't have an issue with this." Um, and they go, well, why is that? Why are you so calm? It seems like, you know, the country might be heading towards collapse. He goes, I think the next government is going to solve this. And so the tone of the interview goes, oh, they think he might be interested in the libertarian candidate, Millet, or he might be, you know, from Juntos for Cambio, which is sort of like... The Wait, the current, right here the current president is saying that? The current president is saying no, 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 that the no. next government he will says, solve it? No, no, no. This, this guy they get on the street, he's at a cafe, you know, sitting mm. there with some lady. Oh, okay. goes, oh, I'm not worried about the dollar, where the dollar's at. Um, I'm, the next government will fix it. And so, you know, you imagine he's from the opposition, but he goes, no, 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 Cristina will fix it, which is very funny. It's, it's very funny. Um, and a lot of these people are, are aware of the fact that it's like blatantly inclined with, you know, they go, well, you know, I'll vote for, you know, Cristina or, or for the Peronists and they'll give me a new iPhone. Or you have like, you know, the local person who's involved in like local politics and gets a really nice paycheck because of that. Whereas, you know, college grads here from top colleges are earning, I'd say the average wage for someone who's not exporting their labor directly outside of the country. So you're not working remote for some corporation outside or have some sort of special thing you're doing. Um, I'd say the average and things here is very funny. You, you mention your monthly wage, not your, your yearly wage, um, the, <laughs> just because things are so temporal here. Um, the monthly wage, I'd say for someone coming out of undergrad, doing fairly well, on average, I'd say it's somewhere between, and it's it's very variable because it depends when you've last adjusted for inflation. But in dollar terms, I'd say it's somewhere between like six hundred, seven hundred dollars a month. So you know you're looking at maybe ten thousand dollars 
a year. And these are people who speak English very well. They know how to program. They're worldly. This is like very much the upper crust of, of Argentine society. I'm not talking about someone, you know, who went to a tier three or tier four college here. Yeah, it's crazy just that spread in salaries and also spread in just like cost of goods. I mean, it's the only place you can get like quality ribeye for $3 a pound and like beautiful apartments. Oh, Argentina is the like, best. If you want to eat healthy, yeah, it's crazy. you want to have someone clean up after you, like very cheap human labor. You want to take like $5 Ubers for an hour. Argentina is the number one place. Highly recommend to come out here. A lot of people come out here, fall in love with the nightlife, fall in love with the people. Um yeah, very Yeah, very I mean much. our our trip here has been going really well. Like a bunch of people want to come back. Um it's been interesting. I mean, I I was studying abroad for full disclosure. I did a summer abroad in Argentina in 2010. So I guess that dates me a little bit. Um but basically I, I expected when I came back last year in August that because the peso had devalued from say 4 to the dollar to about I think it was at 280. Uh, not, you know, it's almost double that, but it was about 280 last August. Um, and I was expecting it to be kind of like collapsed, honestly. I was expecting like, this is sort of Lebanon. This is what I read about like Weimar Germany. I was expecting that state of collapse and I didn't see it. So like, why why isn't Argentina more collapsed given it's gone through, you know, it's hyperinflating right now. It's hyperinflated in the past. Like what's what's holding it together? Yeah, I think... What's going on with Argentina here is I think there was a lot of injection of cheap capital, um, but I very much feel that this is the calm before the storm. Um, so the other day, it was again on, on Argentine Twitter, sort of this viral post that, so the, um, the, the central bank here forces local banks to give 60% of their dollar deposits to to the central bank. Um, mm -hmm. And this is the face value of why this is, is it's for safeguarding against bank runs. Um, I think <laughs> it's a lower percentage right. of pesos um, and a higher percentage of dollars because you can deposit dollars or pesos here, right? These are treated different. Um, and what's happened is the Argentine government is defending this indefensible peg. They've been attempting to defend this peg. In Argentina, there is... You know, there's 15 different rates. This doesn't happen in any other country where it's like, oh, what's the price for the dollar? And it's like, well, depends who's asking. And it's very much depends who's asking. You can get a price that's like at 220 or you can get a price that's at 490 right now. Um, and this is the way that the Argentine government sort of sustains its like parasiticness is it's very much a parasite that grows on the back of the local agricultural. You know, there's this phrase that in Europe, you, you, you know, plant the seed and the earth spits it back at you. In Argentina, you plant a seed, you come back a week later and a forest has bloomed, you know? Um, translate over a little roughly, but, but that's basically the idea. The agricultural sector here is great. There's a lot of innovation. There's fantastic quality. If you eat Argentine beef or, you know, you like Argentine wine or, you know, whatever, it's, it's very, very high quality compared to what you can get elsewhere. Very, very cheap. Um, that's why, you know, the cost of living here is relatively low. And if you want to eat healthy here, it's very affordable. Whereas if you want to eat, you know, maybe like imported Doritos, it's difficult to get a hold of. It sounds uh, as if the, the population to some extent is working around the government. So can you, is, is that accurate? And can you talk about the ways that you sort of continue to function when the government is falling apart? Yeah. Going back really quickly to, to the different 
prices. So you have different prices. If you're exporting something, you get paid dollars by whoever's buying on the international market, then that goes through the central bank and the central bank gives you, you know, 220 pesos to the dollar when the actual market price is like something around 490 right now. Um, and then when you your wage gets cut worse than half, yeah, yeah. You're, you get like you're 45%. Basically, yeah, it's basically a 50% tax on anything that goes out or a 50% or a hundred percent tax on anything that comes in. It depends how you want to view it. Um, and then you'd think, you know, you can arbitrage this by importing things for very cheap. Um, but you can't do that because it's, there's a huge mafia. Um, and so there's no real arbitrage gap um, or, or it's, you know, you have to really get into the weeds and work around this bureaucracy. Um, what you do have, so the parallel institutions that you have is you have cuevas, which cueva means cave. So you have these caves where you can go and you can trade, you know, your pesos for dollars at the real rate, um, vice versa, your, your dollars for pesos, et cetera. There's very much parallel institutions. Another parallel institution, you know, in the U.S., there's very much you have sort of the beginnings of the breakdown of uh, the state, you know, monopoly, the legitimate monopoly of the state on violence. And so here it's very common to have like a local guard outside your house if you live in public where you have country clubs, but they're country clubs where all the houses are inside. So you have like a nice golf course, nice tennis course, maybe a little restaurant, whatever. And you'll also have all the houses will be inside and to go in and out your, you know, your car gets checked out. You have to tell them who you are and what there's a lot of parallel institutions here. I think it's something that in the U.S. might be a bit of a forward look, maybe if, if things keep going in a certain direction. Okay, so you have Cuevas. You can basically get a really good rate on your dollars when you come here. And can you kind of talk about like the crypto situation? You know, for example, being in El Salvador, we had pretty good access to crypto off-ramps via Bitcoin. In Ukraine, we actually had like fantastic access to off-ramps. What's it like in Argentina in terms of like buying crypto via cash and selling crypto for cash? Yeah, the thing here is most of the Cuevas are very old school. So they're very used to the greenback. Um, I think something like 30% of all physical dollars are actually in Argentina. There's actually more physical dollars in Argentina per capita than there is in the U.S. Um, yeah, I saw 200 billion total, which is pretty crazy, large amount of like literal physical cash under mattresses. Oh, especially when you That's, compare that to yeah. how poor Argentina is, you know, it's it's very impressive that there's more physical dollars here in, in Argentina. You know, most of M0 is here um, compared to to how much there is in the U.S. Um, I'd say there's a very high amount of literacy and of access to crypto. The issue is some of the cuevas, there's very much like a foreign scene and a local scene as far as the cuevas and, and crypto adoption. But there's a very high amount of startups here that are built around crypto, uh, people who you know export their labor outside and then maybe they receive money into a bank account that they have in the U.S. through a relative. And then you know, the U.S. is very convenient here and is very much a global place in that they don't report. Everyone reports tax info. So if you're an American national living in Argentina, the Argentine government is sort of forced to report, strong-armed into reporting your, your holdings to the American government. But vice versa, this is not true. So a lot of Argentine people have, you know, their money and their accounts in the U.S. Um, or Uruguay. Uruguay, I would say Uruguay is like the Ibiza combined with Switzerland of Latin America because you have a very favorable, you know, capital regime, but also, you know, Punta del Este where there's a lot of partying going on. Um, 
Switzerland. So, yeah, parties. there's a yeah. high level of crypto adoption by the local people to get around capital controls. We're like the pros of, of getting around capital controls here, I'd say. Yeah, I just remember seeing a ton of ads back in August, you know, buy Bitcoin, escape the inflation. And I, I don't think I'd seen that really in many places besides there were a couple ads for exchanges in Kiev, but I'm not really used to seeing subway ads where they're where they're advertising, you know, Bitcoin. I'm kind of surprised the Argentines even allowed that. Is it primarily like OTC or? I'd say there's a very large amount of OTC, but right now crypto is sort of like a gray market. There really isn't any legislation on crypto in Argentina saying whether it's illegal to buy or sell it, because technically it's it's illegal to buy and sell dollars, you know, at something that's not the blue rate. Um, right. But crypto is sort of tacitly allowed with this understanding that one day it'll be very shut down. The issue, the difference here between here and the U.S., because things are somewhat similar in the U.S., you know, you have these different agencies vying for control. Is no agency has actually come out and said this is illegal. So it's not like Gary Gensler in that sense where he says these are securities. On the one hand, and on the other hand, people here are very comfortable with stepping outside the system. Like that's not this weird thing where it's like, oh, you don't pay taxes or oh, you're changing dollars illegally. Like Cuevas, you maybe have this idea of like some dingy, you know, underground gray market. Or, oh, it's you have to be careful. No, these are like nice offices. There's different levels, you know, maybe you have some in older offices, but like there's these people that have like prime real estate, really nice offices, like, you know, top story in a really nice office building and they'll give you dollars as a Blu-ray. They'll give you pages as a Blu-ray. Um, so it's very normal here. Very, very normal. Right. So can they even shut down crypto? Like if you have these Cuevas already normalized, already operating, if the Argentine government were to say like, you know, crypto is illegal across the board, would that even work? Or would everyone just, would individuals just route around it? Yeah, well, the issue here you have, and I think this goes to a broader conversation in crypto, is right now there's very few goods that have their prices denominated in actual crypto. And I think as that happens more and more, this is going to be a, a very important and very good thing for the crypto ecosystem and for digital assets as actual money. Um, as, as units of currency, or at least units that you can use to transact, whether they're stable coins, whether it's something like Bitcoin, whether it's Ethereum. Um, you, you need people actually willing to transact. So in Argentina, you can use crypto, but the problem is you can't pay for goods and services in crypto, right? You need pesos for that. And everyone accepts greenback, but at the end of the day, you need to equal out your Cuevas balances and greenbacks, right? You, you need to be able to even that out. Hmm. What about just stable coins being more of a focus? Because as you mentioned, a lot of things are denominated in dollars. There's a ton of stable coin activity in dollars. Can you just do it that way? Yeah, there's a ton of stable coin activities in dollars. Um, I definitely recommend getting you know some Tether if you come down here. Tether is sort of king down here um, because USBC, you don't have the advantage of, of the US and you have the fear that you might get locked out and you know have to try to get your dollars back through a legitimate system in the US and you might not have access to that as an Argentine. Mm. Um, Which seems Binance reasonable given here. you know the collapse of Silicon Valley Bank. Like, you could easily picture you know, the US government saying, okay, all Americans are bailed out, you know, all of their reserves, but not foreigners. Yeah, you could have something where Tether, you know, Circle says, okay, you know, we have an account for everybody, link your USDC account to, you know, your bank account and we'll send you the treasuries there. We'll liquidate treasuries that we have, and send you dollars to a bank account. And then as an Argentine, you're somewhat locked out of the system. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. And then can you talk a little bit about 
you know, exporting services, apparently you get the terrible peso rate, which effectively is cutting your income um, in half, more or less. Like, how are people getting around that if they're, say, like, you know, contractors, if they're working in crypto or their ways around that? Like, if you wanted to just kind of optimize your own situation, would Argentina kind of provide, I don't know, kind of rich soil to make that happen? When you say optimize, do you mean for someone who's living in the U.S. right now, or do you mean for someone in in actually in Argentina who's trying to optimize? Yeah, their I, I mean as an expat hub. I mean, for example, Argentina was just listed as like the number one expat hub. A ton of herbiters have been enjoying it. Um, relatively good, like kind of bizarrely safe compared to New York City, compared to even you know some other cities with a little bit better safety in the U.S. And so I'm kind of I'm just curious, like if an American or if a foreigner was kind of coming here and they wanted to work remotely, um, maybe, you know, maybe just in crypto, is that pretty doable? A hundred percent. I think most people who export, for example, dev work, um, outside of the country always, you know, they find a way to, to receive it in, you know, to sort of get it outside of the country. So their wage doesn't get slashed in half and then mm. they bring it here, whether that's, through crypto, through greenbacks, through whatever mechanism they can. Um, I think as a foreigner, I, I would highly recommend it. And, you know, something that sort of struck me, I was in the U.S. recently. I hadn't been there for a little while, um, at least not to any major cities. I'd gone to New York and, and, you know, to my hometown, you know, where I grew up and whatnot. Well, I, I went to Denver. It was very shocking to me to see the state of Denver. Um, almost two on the nose the first night I had like an experience walking by like a very stereotypical homeless guy with a shopping cart who was clawing at a, at a brick front and saying, get out of my head. Yeah. It was, it was almost two on the nose. It seemed like a paid actor. And I think Argentina seems very unsafe, but the unsafe areas are very well understood where they are. You know, it's, it's understood and you can get around them. And it's not like the U S where they gaslight you and they say, Oh, it's safe. Or it's normal to have your car broken into, or it's normal to have like these quasi, you know, Mad Max scenario of like roving, like homeless, you know, drug addicts. Um, it's very much understood that that's the reality, but that it's not normal. And people get around, like I said, with these, you know, um, institutions outside of the government, whether that's living in a, in a gated community, these country clubs, whether that's hiring someone and, and setting up a little post on like a public road where someone sits there all night and there's a watchman. Um, or, or stuff like that, you know? Yeah, I mean, my own experience was like, I was sort of surprised to see like a homeless person, you know, moved out of the park in Recoleta, the kind of rich area. You know, that doesn't really happen in the US anymore. And then I was, you know, saw police actually arresting kids who had been shoplifting on Santa Fe. And like, it, it was weirdly, it felt like actually pretty policed in a way I haven't seen, you know, a modern city in a long time be policed. Yeah, I think also the, the thing is, as an expat or foreigner here, if you're on an American salary, you're automatically in the top 1%. And so you can afford very easily to live in very, very nice places that are policed very well, you know, sort of quote unquote gentrified, you know, as, as they say. Um, so it's a, mm. it's a huge advantage for sure. So are the Argentines then, are they adapting? Like you mentioned the salaries are terrible, but, you know, most of the people I'll, I meet, they're pretty intelligent. They have fairly good English. Like, are they adapting? Or are they mostly focusing on exporting services now or like working in the crypto economy or in tech? Like, is the country adapting or are people still trying to like win in the old system, you know, get the lawyer job, become a doctor, that kind of thing? 
Yeah, I'd say the country has adapted, right? You can't have this for a hundred years and have people not adapt. Um, you know, they say that like Argentine founders are, are forged in fire and then you go and you raise Silicon Valley capital and it all becomes very easy for you. Um, I think you're seeing a microcosm, right? Because you come here and you meet people who are sort of adjacent to the, to the expat community. There are a lot of people that struggle a lot. And the other issue is that in Argentina, it's very hard to save, right? Because you can save in dollars, but then you get inflated away. You can't really invest in the S&P. You can't really get an interest rate. It's very difficult. So most people just consume. You know, they go out a lot on weekends. They party hard. Um, they don't save a lot of money. They also live with their parents until it's older. It's very common here to live with your parents until um, you're like almost about to get married or, you know, you're 26. I think it's also very different because it's, sort of a one city country, you know, Buenos Aires is very much the hub um, where, where things are going on. It's not like the U.S. where you have, you know, a lot of different tier one and even tier two cities. There's very much a clear winner take all scenario. Mm -hmm. And where, what's like the long-term prospect here? Like, you know, there's an interesting candidate, Malay, for example, the libertarian candidate who's polling pretty high, it seems now, and he's talked about fully dollarizing, getting rid of the peso, you know, maybe legalizing crypto. Like, what's the future? Can this kind of just keep going on as it's been going on for the last hundred years and then people just adapt at the individual level? Or is there a kind of like potentially government-run solutions that change this? Could you dollarize, for example? I think dollarizing would be a mistake. I think it's, it's complicated, right? You have a pretty big problem today with the inflation. But the inflation, like the inflation is not the real problem, right? The inflation is just a symptom. Saying inflation is a problem is like saying, you know, I have all this laundry on my chair in my room. Everyone's had that one chair in college or whatever. Um, wow, I have all this, this clothes on my chair. This is a very big problem. The real problem is you're not washing your clothes, right? And that's the problem in Argentina is Argentina can't balance its accounts, right? There's huge expenditures where, you know, it's, it's taxed pretty highly here but you're not receiving a lot of bang for your buck, right? You have like to hire basically a parallel police. Um, the finance institutions aren't great, et cetera. You're not getting a lot of bang for your buck out of the taxes and the taxes are pretty high. Um, mm. And so you're having all this money basically going into subsidizing, you know, clientelism and these political pawns in, in local governments or, you know, some of the northernmost provinces have like 60% of their labor force is basically directly hired by the government and obviously not producing very much. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's high. I saw like 52% of Argentines are currently receiving benefits from the government, like income benefits directly. Oh, yeah. Half. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and these northern provinces are just completely, completely subsidized by by the national government. Um, so the, the, the reason you have the inflation, to come back to that, is the Argentine government takes out debt and pesos, right, initially. And it says, okay, we're going to fund our, our national balance through debt. All right, that's great. Mm -hmm. So you're printing a bunch of pesos, so there's going to be inflation. So then people are saying, well, I'm not going to accept pesos unless it's at a crazy, you know, favorable rate. I'll accept dollars, right? I'll accept dollar debt, dollar denominated debt. And so then you have dollar denominated debt, right? And then you, you go to the IMF and you get this dollar denominated debt, et cetera. And the problem there is, you know, you're going to print the pesos to try to get dollars and people are going to realize this and there's going to be a large amount of inflation. So Argentina basically subsists um, on the very edge. It's like this this person, you know, this guy that you know, who hasn't really figured out his living situation. 
he's still sort of partying, wasting a lot of money. And he doesn't understand that the tab is coming due. Um, and the way the government survives is basically by liquidating the middle class's savings and pesos um, very quickly. You liquidate that very quickly. You have a lot of inflation. You liquidate what little reserves you can get from, from emitting debt. And then, you know, maybe you'll privatize an, an, a national industry and make some quick money that way. It's not a very sustainable system. Mm. I mean, the population's mostly reacted to that now, right? We talked about the really high amounts of dollar holdings. Like, is there that much to steal left or is everyone just converting their income into dollars as fast as possible? Well, yeah, and that's why you have this system that tries to hem you in, right? They try to not let you buy dollars. You you can't legally buy above a certain, I believe it's like 500 or $800 a month, and you have to go through this crazy bureaucracy in order to buy it, and you're buying it at the unfavorable rate and whatnot. So the dollar, you know, the government very much tries to keep your savings in and tries to keep them in pesos so it can steal as much of it away. Like I was saying earlier, you know, there is this report that the central bank is actually zeroed. So right now they've dipped into um you know citizens uh bank accounts and if they sell all of their gold reserves and all their dollar reserves right now it comes out to zero so they can't defend the peg anymore this is why the peso the, the dollar shot up you know or the peso's gone down mm. and declined more accurately um and Millet is trying to dollarize he wants to dollarize i think dollarizing would solve a lot of the short-term problems but then you're sort of at the whim of of the united states you know um and it becomes very difficult for an independent country, whereas if you're some small banana republic where 90% of your exports are to the U.S., sure, you know, we'll accept that we'll be a vassal state to the United States effectively, and that's fine. I think as a bigger country, it's very difficult, and you're setting yourself up for a lot of, a lot, lot, lot of problems. I think what you need in Argentina is you need to sort of pay the debt, you know, the tab. You've, you've been running up this account at your bar, having a nice party. And it's time to be fiscally responsible, as unsexy as that is. It's time to, you know, fire all government employees, um, et cetera, and, and accept that these government institutions aren't serving any purposes. There's a lot of government nationalized industry that is completely, you know, unusable. You need to redo um, the whole hiring. Like, it's impossible to hire people. It's impossible to fire people in Argentina. That's why nobody gets hired except in negro, which means like in the black market. So your, your employment isn't legal. Basically, you don't have access to health benefits, really. You know, you can get fired at whim at any moment, et cetera. You have to do all these un, very unsexy reforms, right? You have to, you get dragged into the mud. And it's very difficult to do that because the Argentine, we want a Maradona. We want a Messi to come along and sort of fix everything for itself. And a, uh, it's a much deeper Economic problem. Messi, yeah. Yeah, it's very much they wanted with Macri. That's what they wanted, right? They wanted Macri to come and say, oh, we're now a first world country. We're going to have all this investment. This is great. Um, and we can keep partying, you know, and it's like, oh, we've changed our rhetoric. Well, no, you actually have to undergo, you know, these structural reforms. You you can't have public schools that are horrible, that are falling apart. You can't have police forces where they, the if you're a local policeman here in Argentina, you are gifted the first six bullets. And after that, you have to pay for them out of pocket. Um, so very, very interesting <laughs> things going on here. Um, so, you know, it's, it's difficult. You have to fix a country and that's not something you can do in four years. And Macri promised that he promised, you know, a lot of people sort of are, are angry at Macri and I and think this they is have the good president reason to be. from what, like the late 2000, like 2015 to 2019, what, so the previous one. Yeah. Okay. 2015 yeah, yeah, 2015 okay, through 2019. 
And a lot of people are, are mad at him because he promised a lot of things. I think there's two sides to it, right? On the one hand, he did make a lot of mistakes. Um, I think he tried to appease. He didn't go quite for the graduate approach and he didn't go for the hard approach. I think you have to go for the hard approach. Um, there's there's no time, frankly, to go for the soft approach. Like, this is it. You know, you, you had your college paper you're supposed to be doing for three months. It's the last week. Like, that's it. You're not going out this weekend. I'm sorry. It's not happening. You're sleeping four hours a week. Like, you have to buckle down and get this done. Um, you have to take very frank stock of where you're at. But on the other hand, I do think he's in a tough position. You have the worst drought in 50 years. You have Brazil in a recession. You have the U.S. pushing expansionary monetary policy. Um, you have this perfect storm that makes things very difficult. Um, so I, I do mm. respect him in the sense that he's a very rich guy. Um, and so he could have just done his own thing. He was sort of on his way to a career at FIFA. So I respect him in the sense that I respect the man in the arena. Um, but I, I think there's a lot of mistakes made in his approach. Yeah, I mean, I, I find it all pretty fascinating because it's like this kind of weird arbitrage where any expat can get an incredibly high standard of living. And then you're also running basically like the most accelerated version of a crypto organic bottom-up adoption game that you possibly could by creating these insane capital controls with like weird... I think there's like what, like 10 peso to dollar conversion rates. And you mentioned there's like the restriction on how many dollars you can buy. Um, but then at the same time, you can just like go in and buy crypto with pesos digitally. You can buy digital pesos, uh, digital dollars, and you can also buy physical dollars. So it seems like this fascinating bottom up experiment at the same time that you have a few countries, mainly El Salvador, doing these top down experiments where they're basically like, there's not nearly the number of benefits to the El Salvadorian population to adopt crypto as there is for Argentines right now, because they don't have this built in arbitrage that the Argentine government has created. Um, so it's just a kind of fascinating race that I see between this uh, top down approach from El Salvador and this like bottom up. So I actually kind of, kind of, I don't know. It, it seems like eventually, like if we keep playing this experiment, if people keep adopting crypto, does this is this how you solve Argentina's hyperinflation problems? Yeah, I think it can be a huge solution. And I think as someone who works in crypto myself, I think it's really refreshing for a lot of people and it's refreshing for myself to be down here and, you know, come down here and you see wow, these are, you know, the quote unquote real use cases for crypto that we've been searching for. I think crypto, unfortunately, in the US, you know, regardless of the fact that things are collapsing very much and you're being gaslit about it, taking apart, you know, maybe the, the last three years, you know, going back to 2019, pre-COVID, financial and systems worked for the vast majority of people, the vast majority of time. You know, you might've had 2008, you, you've had some complicated solutions, but if you want to get a loan, you can get it. If you want to get a mortgage for your house, you can get it. House yep. transactions, when you buy a house here, you buy it in cash. You pull up with like a duffel bag full of dollars and you exchange a duffel bag full of dollars for a, a deed. It's like insane. It's absolutely insane. And so here we have a financial system that's broken. I, I think of crypto a lot of times as like, you know, it's like a public good. It's like the idea of having nice parks or a bunker, you know, it's sort of expensive in the short term. But when you need it, you're going to really be kicking yourself if you weren't ready for it. You know, when you have actual this 12% inflation that you had in the U.S., you know, they called it 8%. It's bullshit. They're, they're rigging. You know, they have the homeowner's equivalent of uh, rent bullshit. Um, once you have that, you're going to be kicking yourself for, damn, I, I didn't think about this. I didn't hedge in this scenario. 
Um, and I think crypto is in very much that sense. I think it's like a bunker um, today in, in sense of its capacity to be used as a state. Um, so it's very interesting in that sense where in Argentina, you are having a situation where you can't save in local currency and the government is cutting off all your escape routes. It's very useful to, to have crypto. We talked about like dollar-backed stable coins. Uh, is it primarily like that or is it primarily Bitcoin? What are people fleeing to? There's a bit of both. Um, the nice thing about buying, you know, Bitcoin here in, in Argentina is that the peso might be down whatever percent. Um, your costs are up in, in peso terms very high. And maybe Bitcoin's down 10% monthly or weekly or whatever, but it's like compared to the peso, that's nothing. So that's very attractive. Um, and you do have like this ideological buy-in. You have a lot of Bitcoin. People have been going to this Bitcoin conference down here for a very long time. A lot of technology enthusiasts and whatnot. But people here very much don't have these crazy aspirations. It's very much a, a bottom-up system where it's like, you know, the dollar works for us. Um, 8% inflation seems really nice when you're living in a country with 100% year-over-year inflation. Um, so people here aren't so crazy. I'd say the average person isn't so crazy about Bitcoin, but maybe the average person does have exposure to stable coins like Tether and all such. Yeah, that's so funny that you say that because I think that like actually in El Salvador, the um, common the common person maybe has more uh, exposure to Bitcoin in the sense of like in everyday life, but their opinion of it is that it's too unstable. So it's like the, the opposite. Yeah, and I think the holy grail is some sort of, you know, some stable coin linked to a consumption, to a basket you know, of consumption. Uh, there's quite a few people, I know Reserve has been chasing this for a while. They built sort of a platform on which you can build those. There's a couple of different approaches that I think are very interesting there. Yeah, like in like your electricity, your gas, just like your general kind of like what it takes to be alive costs. Hmm. Yeah, exactly. For sure, for sure. I think it's it's interesting to sort of, you know, say, okay, let's build a stable coin, but let's not peg it to the dollar, you know, because the dollar can be manipulated. I think stable coins have certain attributes that are very nice, but ideally you want something that's not dependent on the, the United States being this uh, mostly benevolent, um, you know, guardsmen of, of the, the global reserve currency. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, the overall vibe I've been getting in Argentina, which is like very different from how it was in 2010, is just like there's a certain class, call it like mainly the young people who are intelligent, well-educated. They just like to, it seems like the government's more or less irrelevant to them now. And that it like, and I sense the same thing in Ukraine. There's this interesting... You know, if I ever talked to someone about politics in Ukraine, they just like, they didn't care at all. They were checked out. They weren't voting because there was so much corruption in Ukraine, um, you know, at least in kind of its post-Soviet era. And so it's, it's sort of this another kind of like, I'm just starting to see these countries where like crypto starts to thrive when people have like really given up on their banking sector, on their government, and they're just kind of thinking, okay, how do I like build up my own life that will help me, will help my family, my friends? And yeah, there's a fair amount of parallels. You know, I don't, we've been traveling a fair amount, just kind of in the Urbit expat crew. And I haven't met, I haven't encountered many that are kind of fitting this sort of interesting criteria that Ukraine had. So it's, it's cool to kind of experience it again in Argentina. It's a different flair because they're Italian instead of Slavic, uh, right? So it's a really different people. You know, the Ukrainians didn't go out to like 8 a.m. partying every 
Friday and Saturday night. Um, so very different, but in, but kind of striking similarities when governments are really on the way out and declining. Yeah, I mean, you have a thing here where there's the elite failure, and so getting into politics is sort of like this bad thing to do. Um, Argentine politics is, is very convoluted, and that'd be a very, very long conversation to, to finish that and go very thoroughly. But it's sort of like a bad word. You know, politics is like a bad word. People don't like to get into politics, um, especially not the elites. Um, it's it's just not an attractive proposition because you're brought into this like war of slinging mud at people where, you know, the other side of play is very corrupt, you know, the parents play very corrupt. And then on the other side, everybody, people don't fall in line, basically. People don't understand, okay, we all need to pull in this direction because there's this very big problem. Um, I, I'd say that the opposition in Argentina, because of the last 100 years, Peronism has controlled the country for something like 70, um, and, and then probably a little bit more than that, you know. Um, it's, it's hard to establish a counter-regime or a real opposition to, to the Peronism. So people don't get into politics. People are totally checked out. And, and Millet is, in my opinion, very much a protest vote, like a, I'm done. I want this total outsider. He's, he's sort of similar to Trump in, in some ways. Mm. And you also mentioned Argentina exporting this Peronista kind of vibe. Like, is this is this phenomenon of Argentina where you move from like ten percent of people receiving direct payments from the government up to fifty two percent now? Do you kind of see the same thing happening in other parts of the world? Yeah, I think you you've started to see this in Europe. You've started to see this in the U.S. You've started to see this everywhere, right? Where people are inflating the currency to get rid of debt, right? Uh, there's, you know, a lot of thought about that. That's the fact that happened. That's what happened in the US. You have this crazy amount of debt. And so, you know, it's denominating dollars. Hell, you know, let's turn on the printer. Let's load up the, the Fed's balance sheet and uh, let's inflate away 12% of it. Um, so you, you have all these things going on that are very similar to what's happened in Argentina. Argentina, in a sense, I think is sort of, you know, a horror story of what can go wrong. You know, it's, it's known as, the failed state, you know, possibly the only totally failed state of the West, um, where there's a lot of promise, like you said earlier, it was very rich. It was actually the richest country per capita. Um, you know, it's still in the G20. And these are all historical things. Today, Argentina is extremely irrelevant, um, you know, aside from symbolically and maybe controls sort of geographical area. Right. Even technologically, you know, it had nuclear power plants, um, what still does. And it had, it sent, it's one of the only countries to, you know, send a living organism into space, which is really interesting. So it has space program. And yeah, it's kind of, I don't know, I just, I've been kind of struck by it as this sort of like example of accelerated decline and kind of like, almost like peering into the future of what could be happening in the West, where it's not collapsy. Like, Argentina's really not very collapsy at all. It's expecting it to be a lot worse. Um, it's actually bizarrely kind of safe in the rich areas. Obviously, I'm getting, I'm not, I'm not going to the super poor areas of Buenos Aires. I'm sure it's much rougher there, sort of like in Mexico City, there's the nice zones and the bad zones. But I've been kind of struck at, we're kind of, it feels like we're getting a glimpse into the future and that we can also kind of play, see how it plays out you know, on the kind of hyperinflation side of things, it's really bizarre, but like both Lynn Alden and Lou Groman, the kind of the two big Twitter macro analysts are both talking about like hyperinflation now in the US. And so it's this big theme. And so I think people are kind of wondering, I, I think I'm kind of, I'm curious your thought here, Salaf, like are people too worried about hyperinflation? Is it like that big a deal if 
a currency hyperinflates? I think it's a big deal the first time it happens. I think when you're not prepared mm. for it, it's a very big deal. In Argentina, people are accustomed to riding the tiger. You know, inflation is just part of life. It's it's normal. Um, it's understood that you know you might get a different price. You have to shop around for prices. Prices are not sticky. If you go to an Argentine restaurant, a lot of times its menu will have you know write-ins for the prices, and the prices get updated on a weekly, you know, sometimes even basis. Um, sometimes there's goods that you can't get because they're just too expensive. I would never recommend you you buy a computer or a phone or a car here. Um, definitely get that side that that stuff. From, from outside just because of the huge taxes and the barriers to importing, you know, durable goods. But yeah, I, I think there's a lot of things that you can sort of rescue. I think when it comes to inflation in the U.S., it's dangerous because people think, oh, I have my money in dollars in my bank account. I'm going to be fine. Uh, I'm, mm-hmm. I'm not going to have an issue here. Whereas in Argentina, people are used to it. So they've, they've been prepared to, to find a way around it, right? Right. Like... For example, if there are banking issues in the U.S., you know the U.S. could devalue those bank deposits if it had to. It, it's probably not the first thing it would do, but that did happen in Cyprus, for example. I'd say a lot of the EU kind of feels like it's at risk for that. Cyprus was an EU country and it had to haircut, you know, fifty percent of deposits above one hundred thousand dollars, I believe, back in two thousand roughly thirteen. And so, yeah, it feels like the first time it happens to a country, there is this kind of risk because people trust mainly. It seems banks, right? You're trusting the banks with your money. And it seems like, well, the stablecoin situation is just complicated, right? Because ideally, we could just sit in stablecoins. But as we saw with the DPEG of USDC, we can't just sit in stablecoins. It's you know, associated with the same problem of banks and bank deposits, bank safety. Um, so it seems, yeah, it seems pretty tricky to kind of navigate this period at this point. Yeah, I'd say it's sort of like a predator being introduced, right? It's almost like a predator from another environment, and that's why it's so dangerous. Once you're used to it, oh, yeah, I like that. I like it. that analogy. That's yeah, good. Yeah, I'd say, well, I'll give you the soundbite here is that inflation is like this apex predator that's being introduced, you know, or this huge change in the environment that's being introduced to the US. And if you look at someplace like Argentina, you can sort of see what the ecosystem looks like once things have evolved to, you know, account for this predator um so argentines are very 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 used to it very accustomed um that's why wages are expressed monthly and not yearly you know or, or crazy quirks like that here you can you know the whole bnpl thing the, the buy now pay later for pizzas thing that pretty much started here and like here there's buy now pay later for everything literally everything you can get it it paid out and you know <laughs> Yeah, I've noticed this. Now you can you can install your you can get your coffee on ins, on installments now in the U.S. I just saw this on Twitter like yesterday. Dude, that's just ins, that's insane. That's very much Argentinization. That's very much Argentinization. Well, I think that about wraps things up for this episode of the Network Age. Thanks so much, Sela, for coming on. It was really fascinating. I think like you know we're all a little bit nervous about this APEC predator inflation, and so you know. Hapsel's down in El Salvador studying it. I'm here in Argentina studying it. And hopefully, yeah, we learn how to kill it together. Thanks so much for coming on the show. Yeah, it was great. Thanks for having me. And, uh, you know, anyone who wants to find me, I'm on Twitter at Sela underscore written out, the uh, underscore written out. Awesome. We'll put that in the show notes.